Hey guys, you're listening to episode 47 of the Finish Line Podcast, where we discuss the intersection of faith, generosity, and personal finance. In this episode, we get the chance to hear from Matt Farmer, who serves as the president of the Heartland Office of the National Christian Foundation. Hey everyone, welcome to the show. My name is Keelan and I'm here with my co-host and brother Cody. Today we got to talk with Matt Farmer, the president of NCF Heartland. Matt has a unique background starting in the NFL before it's transitioning to the military and later into the ministry and nonprofit sector. We often hear that generosity is infectious and Matt's story is a perfect reflection of that, starting out as the recipient of a radically generous gift. Stay tuned to hear all he had to share. Before we get started, Do you ever wish you could find more people who are passionate about generosity, serving their communities, and advancing the gospel? Do you wish you could interact with some of our fantastic podcast guests? Well, we have growing community groups on Facebook and LinkedIn where you can do just that. You don't need to have a financial finish line to join. All you need is a passion for glorifying Christ with whatever God's given you to manage. Look for the link in our show notes to learn more. And with that, let's get to the interview. All right, here we are tonight with Matt Farmer. Matt, thanks so much for joining us. Absolutely. Appreciate the chance to be here. I'm excited to be with you guys. So why don't you get us started off just telling us a little bit about your background, who you are and where you come from and how you got to where you are today. All right, I'll do it. So classic Midwesterner, born in Kansas City, almost the very middle of the country, then grew up in Iowa, small town Iowa called Pella. Many have heard of the company Pella Windows and Doors, another one, Vermeer Manufacturing or Vermeer Corporations there. So small town, lots of Dutch folks there. They say, if you ain't Dutch, you ain't much. We weren't Dutch. So we were just trying to keep up with everybody else. We moved there because my dad was an entrepreneur, was part of a pizza chain called Happy Joe's. Think like a mini Chuck E. Cheese or Chuck E. Cheese Jr. Ice cream parlor, arcade room, big smorgasbord. And they put a window in the restaurant where kids could walk up and watch you know, high schoolers, college students make pizzas. It was like the greatest thing. <laughs> so that's what took us to the small town in Iowa, about 10,000 people. Grew up going to church. We're regular attenders there in Pella. And I think there are, you know, this is unresearched, but I have to believe it's got to have as many churches per capita as any town in the country. I mean, you've got first, second, third Reformed Church, first, second, third Christian Reformed Church. So lots of churches, great place to grow up, great place to have a family, go to school, played a ton of sports growing up. And that was one of my loves. Ended up going off to college at the Air Force Academy there in Colorado Springs. I played football there. That was one of my goals. In eighth grade, I wrote myself a letter telling me what I might be doing when I graduated from high school. And that was one of the things that I hoped and had a great opportunity to play in Colorado Springs, played for a great coach, Christian coach named Fisher DeBerry was really involved with FCA. It was a great influence on my life. My position coach, Larry Fedora, also a little bit like a father figure while I was there. Tons of great experiences, played on some good teams. When I graduated, had kind of a unique opportunity to try to play past my academy days with the New York Jets up there, obviously in New York City. And Bill Parcells was a GM. He liked academy guys. So I think that was part of the impetus. Had a great experience there. But when I was growing up in high school, going through college, One of the things about my journey is I was really good at living the double life. So I knew kind of who to be 
in the right situations and circumstances. And so I was good at putting on a face. And so while I went to church, did FCA, did all those things, about six months after I graduated from college, had a, call it a Damascus Road experience, and my life has never been the same. So it's in this moment of recognizing that I hadn't done a very good job of living a successful life the way that I kind of tried to do it and had felt some conviction and challenge when I made decisions that I knew weren't the right decisions to make. I was baptized young, you know, again, went to church, did all the things, but found myself in a place where I was experiencing a decent amount. I was feeling some guilt, shame, regret for some things that I'd done, decisions I'd made, ways my life had gone. And yet in this moment, at the same time, feeling this overwhelming sense of freedom and grace and feeling God's love and this idea that, in fact, I kind of had this moment of closing my eyes and sort of seeing these arms wrap around me and feeling this incredible experience of unconditional love and grace and tears kind of flowing down to just saying, hey, I relent, I give up, I can't do this on my own anymore. I remember I'd had these experiences at camp like FCA camp and other things and saying, Hey, when I go back home, it's going to be different this time, this time I'm going to change. It's going to, it's not going to go back to like the person that I was before. And at worst, within a couple of weeks, I was back to doing some of the same things I'd done. And a couple of months later, or at best, it was a few months later, but in this moment, it was remarkable. I knew that this was the beginning of a new trajectory for me, as the hymn says, there's no turning back, no turning back. So this happened about 18 months before I got cut from the Jets. And, you know, it was a lifelong dream, put a ton of work and effort into that. And by God's grace, I had this experience and was reoriented around his grace and his mercy before that experience ever came, because it drove me into a, you know, a little bit of an identity crisis as a 25-year-old. And so when I was cut from the Jets, they, you know, call you into the office and they call them the Turk and they say, hey, your services are no longer required in no uncertain terms. And then shortly thereafter, when you get cut, I, the Air Force basically said, hey, your services are still very much required. So come on back in and finish up your commitment. So went back into the Air Force, traveled down to New Jersey, where I was serving at McGuire Air Force Base and walked through this kind of identity crisis moment alongside a mentor of mine who was a chaplain in the Air Force Long story short, finished my active duty commitment, thought I'd never go back to school when I left college. I wasn't really academically inclined, though I went to a great school, certainly didn't put much effort into my academics and undergrad, so thought I'd never go back. And then shortly after this conversion experience, became a voracious reader, wanted to learn as much as I could about as many things as I could, specifically scripture, experiencing God. Went back to seminary, and my active duty time was up to Denver Seminary. So went and got a Master of Divinity degree. While I was there, I met my wife at a place in the Midwest called Canicut Camps. I had never heard of it. My wife had grown up there. She always wanted to meet and marry someone who worked at Canicut. And my football coach in college, Larry, his wife, encouraged me to go there. And another mentor of mine, his wife, encouraged me to go there. And afterwards, I learned at a strong hunch that part of the reason they wanted me to go there was to potentially meet someone to marry. So mission accomplished on their part. So I met my wife there, graduated from seminary. My wife is a K-State undergrad, but Wildcats. She's a speech pathologist though. And so needed to go get a, a master's degree. She kept it in the big 12. We moved to Waco, Texas for one calendar year. She went to Baylor, sick and bears. So, you know, a lot of folks say Waco is a drive-through city. We loved it. I think we were there around the time when Chip and Joanna were 
starting to take off. So spent one calendar year there, but we knew when we moved there that we would end up in Kansas City. So as we were sort of asking the question, what's next in seminary, we had this experiencing God moment where the book Henry Blackaby wrote this idea that God speaks to us in a number of different ways. And when those things all seem to point to the same thing, you can be confident that he's directing you. You know, sometimes we just use our circumstances or whatever, but we had a number of different things pointing us to this idea that we should move to Kansas City. So we moved here in 2011, about 10, a little over 10 years ago. And I spent the first year living here just studying the story of Kansas City. So mentored by a guy in Denver named Jeff Johnson, who was mentored by a guy named Ray Bakke, who has this idea of understanding the story of the city of theology as big as the city and said, hey, if you're feeling called to a city, one of the best things you might consider doing is learning the story of the city. Network with as many people as you can and then pray about where you're supposed to jump in. So I just did that for a year, learned the story of Kansas City, met as many people as I could and prayed about where to jump in. So Jeff has a history with an organization called Mile High Ministries. They do community development, comprehensive community development. So I jumped into an organization here called the Hope Center. It's in one of the most distressed neighborhoods here in Kansas City. I worked for them doing community development for about five and a half years and was in this intersection, kind of a business and nonprofit. We were doing economic development, some real estate development. I was more on the operations side. And so found myself increasingly interested in this intersection of business and nonprofit and some of the ways the marketplace has solutions for some of the most under-resourced communities, not just here, but across the globe. And so as a glutton for educational punishment, I had access to a benefit called the post 9-11 GI Bill. So I went back to school another time for a second master's degree. I went and then pursued an executive MBA at a school in St. Louis, kept it in the Midwest, commuted from Kansas City and while I was doing that, became the chaplain for the hometown Kansas City Royals. So I was doing that while also getting my master's degree. And then about six months before I graduated, jumped in with NCF to lead the Heartland office here in 2019. And I've been doing that alongside the chaplain role since then. So I'm your sort of your quintessential. You look up the definition of jack of all trades, master of none. You might see my picture there. <laughs> Yeah, that's incredible. It seems like you just were in the right place at the right time. A lot of these situations, you just were careful to be selective about how God can use you where you are and also looking ahead to figure out where you want to be in the future. And it's just incredible to hear all the different ways that God's been able to use you. It's just a really cool backstory. And I'm interested, was there a moment or an experience that introduce generosity into your life in a large way? Mm -hmm. That's a great question. Yeah, I had a pretty profound experience when I was in the midst of my identity crisis experience, if you will, transitioning back into the Air Force, reacclimating to kind of life in the military and the disappointment of missing out on a dream, the death of a dream, but then also trying to posture myself knowing that God was calling me to this. It was something that I got to do in some cases on my worst days had to do but was excited about the opportunity and the leadership opportunities that I was going to have. And while I was there, jumped in pretty quickly with a men's group and started leading kind of a men's Bible study. And one of the guys that was in our group, he was getting married. And so he had a house and his wife had a house, a condo. And so they said, hey, we don't need both of these things. You know, they knew that I was kind of 
transitioning back into this world, transitioning to a new spot, looking for somewhere to live, maybe even something to buy. This is the Northeast. Gosh, this is early 2000s. So, you know, real estate in New Jersey tends to be expensive no matter the time frame. And so they said, hey, we've got an extra place. We're going to be together. So we'd love to sell you the condo. I said, we'd love to sell it to you for X price. And I knew enough to be dangerous and thought, well, that doesn't make any sense. That's like 50% of what you could or should sell that for. And they said, well, you know what? This is your first home purchase and we'd love to help you get started. And not only would we love to discount the price, but how do you want this to look? What are some ways you want to make this your own? So between got to pick out some carpet, painting colors and all that kind of stuff. And they said, we'd love to help install it. So they helped the carpet, help paint, and got some help from others too. But they basically said, hey, we'd love to give you your first house for 50% off, which ultimately ended up being part of my overall story when I was able to, in a small kind of way, reciprocate that when I sold it. It was about four years later and transitioned to seminary, full-time seminary from active duty. So as they kind of planted this seed of generosity in your heart, where did that go from there? You know, what did that look like four years later or beyond that even in terms of what kind of stuff God had started in your heart? Yeah, so I'd had enough to know, like my first mentor graduating from college and shortly after I had this Damascus Road experience really challenged me to say essentially, hey, a tithe is the minimum of what you ought to do. And then even kind of said, as I was prone to ask, pre-tax or post-tax? And he gave that classic <laughs> line, well, do you want a pre-tax blessing or a post-tax blessing? Which is maybe heretical, but I knew what he was referencing. And so I kind of had that groundwork, but this was something beyond what, you know, this is like a six-figure value of generosity here. I'm a lieutenant in the Air Force. I'm not making a ton of money, but it was an invitation to say, hey, with whatever you're making, how can you even go above and beyond what your minimalist perception was, at least from the get-go, right? That tithing, maybe a little beyond that was spontaneous giving, but how do I think even beyond that? And so what that turned into when I was transitioning from active duty to seminary, I was mentoring a young man who had just gotten engaged and they were about to be married and thought, you know, this could be a great first house for a young couple just out of college. And so we worked with a realtor tried to figure out a price that was going to be right. Certainly wasn't 50% off, but it was less than I certainly could have sold it for. And as I was thinking about, hey, I'm going into this season, I knew that I was going to be going to seminary. And my goal was to be hyper-focused on the education piece, not on trying to have a job while I was doing it. And so Wayne kind of, where's the line here for selling? And so sold it for less than I could have to them and then used the proceeds to make, for me at the time, the most generous gift that I'd ever made, both percentage and amount. And so it was a ton of fun to make that gift on the backside of selling it to them for a discount. And then that turned into one of the most transformative experiences I've had in my life, which was a trip with World Vision to Ethiopia and Kenya. My first summer of seminary, which is also the summer I met my wife. So traveled to Africa with World Vision and was the beginning of me gaining an entirely new understanding and perspective on what it meant to be privileged, what it meant to grow up where I grew up, what it meant to have the background that I had, just started to force me to ask some questions that I didn't think about asking before. So a new kind of trajectory in a new kind of way. Did that World Vision trip kind of set you on the path to the 
nonprofit sided career that you later went on to? Or how else did that kind of shape your trajectory from there? It absolutely did. So when I went to seminary, I wasn't exactly sure what it would look like on the backside of graduation. And I you know, had some maybe an idea of becoming an Air Force chaplain. Didn't feel called strongly to be a pastor, but had enough conversations with folks that said, hey, if you want to lead a nonprofit at some point, which I had a sense that I might kind of go that direction. They said the Master of Divinity is a great degree because it's as comprehensive you can get. It will equip you as well as, as you could with any degree. And I had the time and the resources to do, you know, 120 credit hours. And so I went that route, not knowing exactly what that would look like, but what it led to both the trip to Africa and then a requirement at Denver Seminary was basically an immersive course. And I chose the urban immersion course. And that course was taught by Jeff Johnson, who ran this ministry called Mile High Ministries. Yeah, it became kind of the answer for me to what was next when seminary ended. Matt, I'm really curious about that gift that you made to that young couple, because you were blessed by another couple when you were looking to buy a house. And I'm wondering specifically, what was that experience like having the ability to pay that forward? Was that a difficult thing to do or was it something that brought you joy? What was that like? Good question. So I think, you know, we reference the verse often in my role at NCF, Acts 20, 35, better to give than to receive. You know, those are Jesus's words. And I think, you know, from an experiential standpoint, it was an incredible blessing, an incredible feeling to receive that kind of a gift from that couple, just feeling like, I don't deserve this. I don't know why you're doing this. Almost like you sort of, you kind of want to give them the Heisman, like, I don't really deserve this. But at the same time saying, all right, Lord, I may be a good receiver of generosity too. But then on the flip side, I think as great as it felt to receive that gift, I mean, I think it just, I knew in a very experiential way what Jesus said. I love the way Eugene Peterson translates it. He says, you'll not likely go wrong here if you keep remembering that our master said, you were far happier giving than getting. And I think this term blessed could be translated literally happy making. And I just think the happy making that happened when I was able to reciprocate that or do a similar kind of gift for them that was done for me, the experience of that brought those words to life in a way that maybe wouldn't have if I hadn't experienced kind of both ends of that gift. And so I think as I look back, it's an incredibly significant moment for me on my journey with Jesus, but also, you know, as we would maybe say more specifically on my journey of generosity. So after that point, with all the mentorship that you had and the studies that you were involved in, I'm curious how you integrated generosity into your life on more of a regular basis. Yeah. So I think meeting my wife, I'll incorporate her and her family because one of the things that we got to witness together as a couple is the generosity of her family, both, I think, in specific ways and kind of the just calculated in the best kind of ways, consistent giving and then spontaneous giving. Both we've experienced that. We've watched them do it and we've experienced it from them. And so as a family, we've tried to be intentional around what that looks like. And so as we think about kind of our own even strategy, I think we would say, hey, we want to be giving above and beyond a tithe for sure. And we want to think about what it looks like to do a graduated tithe. So my professor 
Craig Blomberg at Denver Seminary talked a lot about that. And he's written extensively on generosity. He wrote a book, Neither Poverty Nor Riches, some other books and articles. And I think watching him, we wanted to say, hey, this idea of a graduated tithe, but also the phrase that Randy Alcorn has made famous, you know, when God increases your standard of living, increase your standard of giving. So we've tried to take from a percentage approach. We've tried to say, hey, how do we increase our percentage of giving? Sometimes even if our income doesn't increase, how do we increase our percentage of giving? But certainly if our standard of living is going up, how are we also increasing the amount that we're giving away? And then I think we want to be really intentional also about ways we can be spontaneous with our giving. So one way we've worked with our kids is we put these plastic bags together. We live in a neighborhood in Kansas City where folks from all over the world live, all over the socioeconomic spectrum, all over the ethnic spectrum, lots of homeless folks in neighborhoods surrounding ours. And so we come across folks a lot who are holding signs and asking for help, asking for food. So we always try to have in our car snacks, drinks, water bottles. And at one point we're putting together, we call them snack bags. It's like a water bottle, a snack, and a personal note from one of our kids. And we've got a nine, six, and a four-year-old, all boys. So our nine-year-old now was the only one who could write anything. So he was the one doing the writing, but (laughs) trying to get to a place where we say, hey, let's have something available when we're asked and give them the opportunity to actually hand them the bag. One of the things we also try to do is, I think, one really simple way to be generous in that moment, not just giving them some tangible resource with food or drink, but to simply say, hey, what's your name? Where are you from? I mean, I know in my work with My Life Ministries, that was one thing we really harped on was like the dignity of people, regardless of where they're at, where they're from, what their life circumstances are. And I know even in that work, connecting with lots of homeless folks, the idea that, hey, I have a name and most people, they don't ask my name. They turn the radio up when they see us. They look away when they see us. So trying to be intentional to say, hey, how can we be generous with both the resources, but also the question of, hey, what's your name? Where are you from? We might drive off, but we at least have asked the question and had an interaction of, hey, I'm Matt. What's your name? Yeah. One of the things I love about that is involving your kids from an early age. I think that kind of stuff really makes a tangible impact, probably much more than we realize in our kids' development. And I think it just gives them a huge head start when they get out into the, you know career world and actually have income to be managing because there's so many phases of I guess, mental barriers that many of us have had to work through and have, you know, big experiences to kind of walk through, but they're starting ahead of the pack on that because things like that are normal to them. You know, that's, oh yeah, that's what we did growing up. Like, doesn't everybody do that? You know, And so I think any ways that we can involve our kids in generosity, just have exponential fruit down the line when they start to, you know, be managers themselves. Absolutely. Yeah, that's right. So you have kind of an interesting career path. And I'm wondering what kind of things over the years have brought you guys the most joy or excitement or passion in generosity. For some people, it's the spontaneous gifts that are just kind of spur of the moment and just feeling led or other people have kind of a very targeted long-term strategy for a very specific cause. I know you were working in community development. I don't know if that played into it as well. So what did that kind of look like for you guys? I mean, I really think as a parent, 
it is a ton of fun to watch your kids join you in that generosity. And I think even the ways that has formed the ways that our kids pray, you know, when we pray with our kids and invite them to pray, basically every time they're praying for the homeless in our community, praying for folks that are disadvantaged in our community. And I think of what James said about God's heart for the poor. And so I think one of the values that we have for our kids, one of the reasons we live where we live is we want to be in proximity with all kinds of people. We want our kids to be exposed to folks that are on all different places on the socioeconomic spectrum. And so that'd be one answer. I think one of the things that my wife has a heart for is, she, you know, as a speech pathologist, she's been working with an organization called the Marion Hope Center. They work with children that are on the autism spectrum. And so essentially from birth to high school. And so walking alongside kids that are experiencing that and contributing both with her vocation. I think that's, you know, one of the ways that we can be generous is with the ways that we work and even volunteering, showing our kids that, hey, sometimes you do work and you don't get paid for it. And that's part of what it means to follow Jesus and to be generous with your labor, be generous with your vocation. But that's one of the things that she's been passionate about through that work. And she's been able to help some friends with questions they have around their own kids that are having speech issues. And I was one of those kids. So we laugh because all three of our kids are going to need a speech pathologist in their life. My wife won't be able to be the one, but she certainly is equipped for it. Yeah. I love that. What you said about your kids praying for the people in your community that they're interacting with. And I think that's so significant because if I were to go back and audit my own prayers, I think I'd find that I'm focused on myself a lot more than I'd care to admit. So the fact that they're looking outward and trying to reflect that love of Christ is really powerful. I'd love to hear more about what actually brought you to NCF and what your role looks like at the National Christian Foundation. Yeah, so I was first introduced to NCF when I first came to Kansas City and I was doing all my research on kind of the background of the city and the story of the city and just got connected to a bunch of different folks who worked there or were connected there. And so when I jumped into the Hope Center, we had givers who were donating through their NCF giving funds. And so was interacting there and then was connected to Connie Hoagland, who has been a longtime kind of ministry services expert with NCF and equipping ministries and thinking through this idea of non-cash giving and some of that. So I had a fairly broad exposure to NCF. But as I was in grad school, I think as I was even thinking about going back to grad school, like I said, was really interested in this intersection of business and nonprofit in ways that those two kind of vocational streams can integrate, ways they can complement one another. And again, I had no idea what that would look like for me when I went to grad school. But as you mentioned earlier, I think in some cases, there was intentionality around where I landed, where God landed me vocationally. And in other cases, it was very much... God orchestrating kind of this, hey, you're going to go step into this specific situation where there's a need, whether it's my wiring or whatever it might be. I just found myself in a situation where there's some uniqueness to it. And that's sort of how I fell into the NCF role was six months before I graduated and with my boss said, hey, NCF Heartland looking for someone to lead the office moving forward on the backside of a transition. And are you interested in doing that? And I thought, you know, this sounds like a good challenge. And I think the idea of both building the organizational side of an office and also serving really generous people, the combination of those two things 
was really energizing for me. And it very much is, I mean, this role at NCF is very much in the wheelhouse of the intersection of business and nonprofit. We walk alongside business owners, real estate owners, givers of all kinds, but how do they leverage all the resources that they've got? And oftentimes those are a business, those are real estate assets. And so it's a ton of fun to integrate those two worlds and bring the background that I have and the broad experience that I have to this role at NCF leading the Heartland office. At NCF, like you said, I'm sure you get to see the generosity of all kinds of different people in expressed in all kinds of different ways. And I was wondering if you had any stories of people that might stand out to you of just either creative things that people have done or just, you know, deeply passionate givers who are following God and, you know, clearly his hand is on what they're doing. Yeah. So there's a couple in Kansas here who I got introduced to, been serving for a couple of years. They were telling me about some of this land that they had that they'd inherited and had been record. It's a combination of recreation and farmland. And they were thinking about, do we continue to use it? Do we give it away? What are we going to do with this? And they just started saying, Hey, I think God's asking us to give it all away or give away our entire portion. And they own part of it with a sibling. And so thinking through, Hey, what could it look like? Or what would it look like for us to give that away? And you know, that is one of the things It's one of the bread and butters of NCF is to say, Hey, we can help you give that before it sells and save on the long-term capital gains of, that's appreciated through owning that property. And so just said, hey, let's investigate that. Let's see what that looks like. And they were already really generous anyways. And so started talking through it. And one nuance was, well, you know, the sibling's not a believer. So I don't know if they're going to be on board with this and they've got to be on board with it because we both own half of it. And so it became this really unique opportunity for them to both strategize about both how they were going to do it and what they might want to do with it, the proceeds on the backside. But then also this conversation of, well, why do we want to do this? What's the motivation to do it? Jesus is our motivation. God's generosity toward us is our motivation. And so that became an opportunity to continue that conversation with the sibling about, hey, here's why. And it's a witness to what God's asking us to do and what God's inviting us to do. You know, Paul's pretty clear. I know generous giving loves this conversation out of second Corinthians nine, that generosity is its own witness. It can be an apologetic itself. And so what I loved about their story was this journey of exploring the idea of gifting this farmland, this recreation land became an apologetic for their sibling. And it's part of their ongoing story of generosity it was a ton of fun to be alongside them as they both investigated it and then executed on their desire to do it. I love what you just said about generosity being its own witness. I had never heard that specific phrase before, but I've found having talked to so many incredible people that are living lives fueled by generosity, just like what you're doing, it just simply is true that there's something contagious about it. It's attention grabbing and you want to know what's behind it. And you can use that as an opportunity to point the people around you to Christ. It's just such a powerful experience I've found. I am wondering, through your work, are there certain strategies that, I guess this is a two-part question, are there strategies that you see people using very frequently? And are there any strategies that you think more people should be aware of? Working for NCF, I suppose this might seem like a shameless plug, but I think what's true is that you can never communicate enough 
the importance and the strategic opportunity to do non-cash giving, just as we think about what are the primary things that people own, they're non-cash items. They're things that are not in an account somewhere that they can give away. And so to continue to help people think outside of this idea that what we give away is just in our checking account, it's in our savings account, it's in some liquid account. It's like, no, the actual, the strategic opportunity are the things that aren't in a liquid account. And so how do we continue to have that conversation, continue to think beyond the checkbook is one way that we like to say it. So I would say generally, I think we want to continue to beat that drum. I would say many of us in this country, at least, have appreciated assets that we can leverage for generosity. And it's often one of the most tax efficient ways to do it, but more importantly, one of the wisest ways to do it, a way to be a really good steward with the resources God's given us. I think one of the other ones I'm really excited about, I admittedly don't have a ton of experience, but I'm excited to dig in this idea of kingdom giving collaborations. So I know Cameron Doolittle has done a lot of work around this in McClellan Foundation, so plug for him here. But I think there is something really powerful about this idea of giving together and what that could look like when a group of people say, hey, how could we solve a specific problem? How can we meet a specific need? And then what does it look like to do that together? As I think about even my own experience with this house transaction, right, being the recipient and then the giver, it's like, Imagine doing that with a group of people and combining resources in a way that just accelerates and catalyzes that kind of a giving. And the experience that I had, the happy making that happened, right, when that gift happened, what that looks like for the group. I mean, I know research shows that it's it's incredibly catalytic. And so I think for folks to begin to press into what could that look like for me and whether it's a group of friends or small group of folks that you've got close relationships with. I'm excited to dig into what that might look like, both for me personally and I think here in our region. Yeah, that's a really interesting concept. What did you call that again? Kingdom giving collaborations. Yeah, just thinking through that concept, that makes a lot of sense about the catalytic effect of that. You think about people who have a shared traumatic experience and how that really accelerates the bonding process of their relationship and that shared experience And this is almost like an inverse positive version of that, where just like you said, with the house experience that you guys experienced or any other kind of, you know, significant giving experience, that feeling that you get afterwards, having that as a shared experience with others, and then also just getting to see God working through other people in the exact same area that you're working in. I can see how that can create a synergy that could be very powerful. Absolutely. I think one side benefit I would mention too is I haven't heard anyone say this specifically, but I think about this talk Andy Crouch gave about God and Mammon on the Faith Driven Investor Conference. And, you know, we're all prone to greed, full stop. And I think the power in a group setting, talking about generosity, talking about our giving, it opens the conversation to a comfortability with the discussion of money what we're going to do together. I think it forces all of us to think beyond our own individual capacities. And so it pushes back this force of mammon that we're all prone to, to hoard and to hold on to tightly. It just is some inherent accountability to say, hey, we're all prone to this, but let's push against it and let's provoke and promote each other to think bigger picture, to think with abundance and open-handedness about what could we do together. Yeah, and I think a big theme in all of those concepts is this idea of relationship. I know a lot of 
people who listen probably come from kind of a business background and it's easy to get kind of focused on the numbers or the actual act of giving. And I think it's important to always be injecting relationship into everything. I mean, the whole concept of generosity is about relationship between the giver and the receiver. But I think there's a broader relationship, which is kind of what you're talking about here as well, about the shared collective giving and the effect of drawing others into that kind of generosity. Matt, I know you're involved with real estate personally, and I was just wondering if that's something you're actively involved in even now, Mm -hmm. right? Yep. Yeah, we've got a little fledgling real estate company my wife and I run. And I think one of the things we talked about from the very beginning was people over profit. And so we really wanted to say, hey, as we kind of invest in these single family houses and we were investing in houses in our neighborhood, so we were within close proximity of them, uh, wanted to provide an affordable rate for rent and wanted to be really intentional about the relationships that we developed with our renters, not in a like we had to be friends with them kind of a way, but if and when emergencies came up, things happened, we wanted to defer to, hey, what can we do to even provide resources for them in those moments? Or if it's a decision of, hey, are we going to get rent or are we going to just defer it and do something else? Are we going to cover the cost of something, whatever it might be? You guys do this too. So, you know, there's a million different scenarios that come up in kind of in rental real estate. So we've been just very intentional about both being generous with the proceeds, but also trying to be as generous as possible with the rental rates are and how we step in as needs arise. And inevitably they have, and it's been a great opportunity to vote with our feet to say, Hey, what are we about here? And what's the focus of what we're trying to accomplish? Yeah. I love that example. And some of the examples that you've used before, I think generosity is so commonly thought of as giving money away and You've given a few examples of how not putting yourself first when a transaction occurs is a really important opportunity to be generous. It's just because you could charge more, just because you could earn more, doesn't mean that that's got to be your first priority. So to really integrate that into how you live is just really exciting as a concept. And it's opened my eyes to ways that you can impact people. So Matt, I'm wondering what you're excited about coming up on the horizon, either in your role with NCF or or personally? Great question. You know, I think we talk a lot about what's coming up in terms of the broader kind of economic realities and economic forces and here in the next gosh, the next few years, all the way to the next 30 to 50 years, we're going to experience what we would call the world's greatest stewardship opportunity. Other folks call it the greatest wealth transition, the greatest wealth transfer in the history of the world. And so as we think about what's next, we feel like we're as poised as anyone. We've already been helping folks in the midst of this, but we're well-equipped to be on the front lines and at the tip of the spear, as we like to say in the military, of what it looks like to help folks steward these resources Well, I mean, it's a mind boggling number. I mean, anywhere from 60 to $80 trillion, which is hard to even wrap your mind around. It's like to think about what it means for those amount of resources to go to is just crazy. Because you think about it can really only go three places. It can go to family, to charity, or to the government. And we want to help folks figure out how do we get it to the right portion of the pie? I think we have the tools and the experience 
to really help folks do it. So, and I think as we've witnessed, even the last couple of years, we've watched a record amount of giving happen through the pandemic, which none of us would have ever predicted, but incredible amounts of generosity. I mean, like we've grown for the size of the organization we are to grow almost 60% last year. So we crossed $2 billion in for the first time ever in 2020. And then we watched $1.6 billion of that go back out the next year. So 70% of what came in went right back out. Last year, we crossed the $3 billion mark in terms of gifts into NCF for the first time. So we went from 2 billion to 3 billion in one year. And wow. what we can, what I can say here in the first, after the first quarter is we're, we're on pace. We're slightly behind pace in terms of gifts in, but we are almost 60% ahead of pace in terms of granting dollars out. So we are watching an unprecedented amount of resources go back out after an unprecedented amount of resources come in. So what I love about what we get to do, our mission is to mobilize resources through inspiring biblical generosity. And we are likely going to watch 70% of almost $3.4 billion go out this year. And I don't know that for sure, but we are certainly on pace to break the record for how much giving has gone out so far and will go out throughout the rest of the year, but that remains to be seen. Can't hold me to it. I might even get in trouble for saying it. I'm just kidding. I won't get in trouble <laughs> for that, but it's fun to be a part of an organization where it's about getting the resources to the causes and the organizations that people love and care about and solving problems and meeting needs that point people to Jesus and remind people of God's rule and reign. Yeah, those truly are some mind-boggling numbers. And I'm excited to see what comes out of this year, but also, you know, out of the next decade. And that God is clearly doing something in the generosity space and really in the, I think, global church. He is mobilizing for some incredible things for us to witness. So to be seen what he will do. I think part of it, too, is the conversation, you know, we have tools that help on the financial side. But I think at the end of the day, you know, we want to continue to remind folks, say, stewardship is about stewarding everything that God's entrusted to us. And while I think we've seen a lot of movement in this conversation around leveraging businesses and real estate and these things that are non-cash assets, it's really valuable. We also want to continue to press people to say, hey, everything about your life, skills, abilities, experiences, testimonies, all of it release it to God for the blessing of the world, for folks to point people to him and communicate his message. And it's fun to watch that in action and to continue to remind folks. Yeah, absolutely. I did want to leave a minute here as we're getting to the end of our episode for our manager's minute. You know, as we seek to manage God's wealth wisely, we like to end every episode with one practical action for our listeners to do just that. So Matt, do you have a quick suggestion for how people can be using any financial margin they have to serve their communities, advance the gospel or build God's kingdom? I do. So I mentioned we live in a really diverse community. We love where we live, experience folks of all stripes and sizes and ethnicities and socioeconomic status. And we love to shop at Aldi. I'll give a shameless plug for Aldi, the grocery store. <laughs> and so one of the things that we've done, I think of inflation, food prices, it's real. One of the things that we do, you know, so if you've been to an Aldi before, you know that like, you know, it's minimally staffed. So you kind of pull all your groceries up, you dump them on the conveyor belt, it pulls them off, and then you just use that little divider in between your groceries. And we love to sneakily like either put the divider back up or sort of indicate to the guy like, 
keep going. And so he or she, you know, they'll pull the next person's groceries through and start stacking them up and try to do it so the person behind us doesn't know what's happening. And then ultimately pay for their groceries and walk off. Sometimes we walk off and we have no idea what their reaction is, sort of like a way to say, hey, this isn't about any kind of credit or anything like that. It's just, hey, we're just walking off and they can be like, what? What just happened? And sometimes just a way to say, hey, God bless you. And it's been a ton of fun to just bless people by getting their groceries. It's like the ultimate pay through the drive through experience, except you can actually see the person behind you. I love right. that idea. And you can do it at any grocery store. I mean, I'm plugging Aldi here, but I don't think <laughs> I've been to a grocery store in the last 10 years that doesn't do the same thing in terms of getting the groceries down the belt. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> Matt, thanks so much for joining us. This has been fantastic. Thanks for all the work you do at NCF and for sharing your story with us tonight. Absolutely. Grateful to be here. Hey, thanks so much for listening to the show, guys. If you have questions about setting a financial finish line, the finish line movement, or anything else you heard on the show today, we would love to hear from you. And now I have a quick question for you. Do you know anyone who is living a life filled with generosity, purpose, and mission? If so, we would love to talk to them. They don't need to have a financial finish line, and they don't have to have all the answers. They just need a heart to steward God's wealth to the best of their ability. If you know someone like that, we would be honored if you would connect us. You can reach us on Instagram at finishlinepledge, through our website at finishlinepledge.com, or by email at hello at finishlinepledge.com. Finally, if you want to find any of our references or links from today's show, you can always find them in our show notes at finishlinepledge.com slash episode 47. That's all we have for today. We'll see you next time. Mm -hmm.